0: What's going on, man? Welcome back to another TOEFL episode, and today is the very first of its kind. That's right, people. We're getting into IBT listening. It's very important because a lot of you have asked me about IBT listening and reading. So what I'm going to go over today is the eight, what is it? Is it the eight? Yeah, I guess you could say it's the eight, the eight different types of listening questions on TOEFL. So what I'm gonna do here, I'm gonna screen share like I normally do, okay? And I need to find the share screen button first, and then flip this bad boy around. Now I'm going to hurry up and put in a disclaimer, guys. This is bestmytest.com, okay? I own any rights to this craziness, okay? Because I don't want blah 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 blah. Okay? Free stuff on the website. Go check it out. I'm gonna break this down rather than looking at some of the context where they explain this, it's too difficult. That's why you need someone like me to come in and help you understand better. Now, detailed questions. Guys, there are specific details that you need and must understand throughout the lecture. But it's just like any other test. Okay, I've listened to so many of these, man. I'm like, okay, I'm listening when the mention is, and then I'm going to put it all together. So what we have here, again, the definition, it says you'll need to listen to specific details. We already know about that, okay? But a lot of people think that this is something difficult and it could be related to the main idea, but to be honest with you, all we have to do is look at the question, and it says, Francine's Farm Scene Painting. Guys, we need to listen for the first mention of the farm scene painting and the, of course, details before and after. That's how you can break this down, okay? We're not listening to everything and all the blah, 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 blah. We have to wait for the farm scene and so we can put it all together. Now, for some of you out there, you probably have already seen this before. You've probably have already listened. But again, the way I coach people, especially in TOEFL IBT, is when to listen for it, not to just listen for every specific detail because then you might get caught, too caught up in the moment. Now, picking out several details and compartmentalizing it is fantastic, but if you don't, next thing you know, this is what's gonna happen. You're gonna end up freaking out, overanalyzing, it, and boom, wrong answer. So, what we're gonna do here, let's listen.
1: You recall I had said that at some point during this semester I wanted you to attend an exhibit at the Fairy Street Gallery and subsequently write a paper about it. The exhibit is on currently and will be at the gallery
0: But before I begin, okay, I completely forgot that this is on the ESL podcast too. So for my folks who are listening, it says what does the professor point out about Francine's farm scene painting? A, it looks like a photograph. B, it might be her most well-known painting C. Franson painted it in the impressionist style D. Franson painted it while she was living abroad
1: gallery for the next month so I want to give you the details of this next assignment okay. the exhibiting artist's name is Rose Franson she's a pretty you. young artist so you might not have heard of her before her style, which she calls realistic Impressionism, is rather unusual and different in comparison to the styles we've studied so far. You should have studied both the realism and Impressionism movements separately in art history. So, can someone please summarize each of these styles? Servicing in the late 19th century, the Impressionism movement differs greatly from the styles that preceded it, in that the... Su-
0: just stopping it now, there has been no mention of the farm scene painting, okay? No mention. Let's
1: Objects go. and scenes don't reflect a fully realistic or exact model of real life. Painters of the Impressionist style generally created works on canvas that had rough textures by using thick paint and large brush strokes. Okay, and what did the subject matter consist of? Impressionist artists opted to paint scenes depicting everyday life, such as people living, walking, sitting in the cafe, and nature scenes, particularly landscapes. Right. Okay. So when you go to the exhibit, you'll see a painting as soon as you enter, and I ask that you examine it closely. It really emphasizes the Impressionist side of and styles with the broad brushstrokes and blurry lines depicting an everyday outdoor scene. With the sky painted pinkish yellow and the fence blue, the colors are kind of unrealistic. You're left with an impression of a chilly, bleak winter's day on a farm.
0: Ta-ta! That's it right there. See, you have to follow the conversation. Now, she mentioned impressionism, okay? Impressionist, impressionism. Impressionist, impressionism, okay? But I was waiting for some kind of details that related to nature. So it was the girl that said the landscape, right? And I'm like, okay, we're getting a little bit close. And then she said, okay, you walk into the exhibit and here's this painting. And she said, okay, pink sky, blue fence. I said, okay, she might say something about a farm coming up real soon. And then of course, this is depicting a farm scene on a chilly day. Guys, C is your answer. Franson painted it in the impressionist style because just before that, she mentioned impressionist. Now, again, if some of you are like, ooh, that was very difficult. Well, look at A, it looks like a photograph. Does it it look like a photograph? Did she mention that it looked like a photograph? She was talking about the brush strokes and everything. I didn't hear any mention about a photograph, nor did I hear any mention about it being a well-known painting. Let's continue listening just in case. Also,
1: an interesting note about Franson, she lived abroad for a while, and when she moved back to Iowa, she would frequent the sales barn, a place where local farmers sold their cattle and farm animals, among other places like dance halls and the like, to watch how people moved, stood still, and what their different postures looked like.
0: So when she was living abroad, there was nothing to it. But when she came back, that's when she started evaluating and observing, okay, farms, the way people stood, this, that. So D, painting it while she was living abroad, there's no recollection, there was no mention of that, okay? And then going into it being her most well-known painting, I didn't hear well-known whatsoever. So if it's too difficult for you to pick up again, you guys, take out those bad answers, and at least have that 50-50 chance to say, you know what? I'm pretty sure it's got to be the impressionist style. Because again, she said she was talking about impressionists. She went into the farm scene and there it was. There was no other mention of any of the other things. That's how you do it with detailed questions. All right? So then you have inference questions, okay? And Honestly, I don't even think that, yeah, as a matter of fact, this audio, I don't even think it's good to be honest with you. It's really weird. So we're going to go into the next one. We're going to go into attitude. We'll do that on my Patreon. Now guys, remember we have a lot of mock tests over there on my Patreon. So if you guys are interested in some mock tests, all right. And if you're interested in me really developing your listening, your reading capabilities, as well as the coaching and other stuff, it's available and it's for cheap. So you make sure you reach out to me now. Let's minus that attitude questions. Okay. These types of things, it's all about the feeling or attitude. It's kind of like with TOEFL ITP, but they, they have since exonerated that. So there is no, not exonerate, but they, they've completely exiled that. That was more of the 2010, 2005, 2000 type of TOEFL ITP tests. So there's no more, there aren't any more questions about what is the, the, the author's attitude towards this? He's envious. He's factual, he's this, he's that. No, that's all gone. Now, with IBT, they do have this. So what we have here, okay, is we're going to listen to the professor. Now the question is, the professor briefly discusses experiments about the wind speed required to move rocks in the desert. What is the professor's attitude regarding these experiments? the attitude regarding the experiments, not specifically in regards to the wind speed moving the rocks, but the attitude towards the experiments. A, their findings were inconclusive. B, the experiments were not conducted carefully. C, the length of the experiments was not sufficient to draw any conclusions. And D, the experiments should not have been allowed by the government, which is kind of weird. But anyways, okay, I won't judge you. You guys ready for this? It's rock and roll. Bring up
2: something that I think raises a crucial point. Next week, we're going to start something a bit different than what we've been doing for the last several weeks. Perhaps you're already familiar with the mysterious phenomenon moving rocks. These huge rocks, some of which weigh 100 pounds, sit on the floor of a desert in California called Death Valley, which is surrounded by mountains. And the rocks move around the desert floor, which is evidenced by the trails like tracks that are left in the sand behind them as they move. No one has ever seen it happen, so there isn't a solid explanation regarding how they move across the floor of the dry lake bed.
0: Not a solid explanation.
2: While there are several theories, we know for sure that humans are not moving them as there are no footprints, tire tracks, nor is any heavy equipment being used to move them. So, how are they moving? Well, The first theory is wind. The majority of rocks are moving in the same direction as the dominant wind pattern, southwest to northeast. So some researchers theorize that it could be super strong windstorms that are moving the rocks from one place to another. However, they all move in different patterns, like in straight lines, zigzags, and big circles. So what could be causing this? Okay, another theory is that it's the wind and rain combined. The desert floor is clay, and it's dry, but sometimes it rains and the clay becomes very slippery. This makes it difficult to walk on, let alone stand on. It's in these wet, slippery conditions that some scientists think that the rocks can be pushed across the desert floor. But there's a major flaw with this theory. You see, in an attempt to test this theory, and to determine the force of wind required to actually move the rocks in these conditions, a group of scientists flooded a piece of the desert floor. To their amazement, they discovered that winds of at least 500 miles per hour are needed to move even the smallest of the rocks. Winds of this force have never been recorded on this planet. So that settled them. All right, There is one other possibility. Ice. Let me explain. Picture this. The desert gets so cold at night that it is possible that the ground could become covered in a thin sheet of ice. So the idea is that the rocks would also become covered in ice, and then the wind could then push them across the icy ground. But the question is, can the wind really move ice with rocks in it? Not only that, but theoretically some rocks would become frozen in the same chunk of ice and be moved together. But it appears that the rocks that have moved have all ended up on their own having taken separate routes. (sighs)
0: Okay. There was a bunch of theorizing. There was a bunch of suggestions, but there was nothing. Now, he didn't mention once about the government. D is gone. C, the length of the experiments, he mentioned nothing about the length of the experiments. Nothing. There was literally one experiment and it was about, what was it? The scientists, something about the winds, right? Something about 500 miles per hour. Then he talked about the ice. But again, that's another theory. Now, the experiments were not conducted carefully. Sure they were. They were conducted. But no, uh, no, you can't have, listen, there have been no winds at 500 miles per hour here on Earth. Maybe in Jupiter. Maybe in uh, Saturn, okay? Uh, well, it's just a gaseous giant Jupiter is. But nonetheless, do you understand? So the experiments, not conducted carefully, no. The length of the experiment, no. Because there was only one experiment. One experiment. That experiment was about, oh, let's see, uh, this, oh, rocks, oh, 500 miles per hour, that's never been obviously, you know, uh, uh, here on earth, absolutely not, so that's it. So, A is your answer. Their findings were inconclusive. None of them, you didn't, he didn't even reach a conclusion. So, it's all about finding, like, okay, all right. Were there any experiments for the first half of the recording? There were no experiments. I was waiting on him to say, the the scientists finally began to do something, you know, and then finally I'm like, okay, we finally have an experiment after like a minute and a half. But guess what? There was one experiment and it wasn't even, like it didn't even work. Like you couldn't even do that. We had to just bomb it right there. There was nothing about the government. There was nothing about the length of the experiment. And again, it was nothing about how careful the experiments that were conducted. No, it, there was nothing about that. So, guys, do you understand? It's all about following it. Because that first minute and a half, there was nothing. I was waiting for the keywords in B, C, D, experiments conducted carefully. C, experiments, uh, the length, the length of the experiment. And D, government. I didn't hear government not one time. So that's why I'm like, ah! Get out of here, you're finished, boom. You see how I'm doing this? So again, I cover this a lot more in the mock test, okay? On my Patreon if you guys are interested in that, okay? So again, it's all about that practice. It's all about that practice. So let's go into function questions, all right? So this is gonna be really interesting to say, word to listen to. So these function questions, again, it says on here, uh, what, you know, what's really going on? What's he really trying to say? What's he really inferring? What is it that he's implicating? There's a hidden meaning behind it. It's kind of like on ITP, it says, what did the man originally assume? What did the man originally assume? Right? So we're kind of looking for the hidden agenda or the hidden meaning behind what is being said. This is exactly what this is right here. We don't have to listen to the first conversation. We're going to listen to the second one. Now, this second conversation, you're gonna be able to make, you know, just basically say, all right, I get it, I understand. All right, that's the end. So, A, to suggest that the citizens of the United States haven't changed much over time. B, to motivate the students to learn more about this particular time period. C, to point out why Emerson's essay has lost some of its relevance. D, to provide background for the concept she is explaining. So, here we go. Again, I can show you the entire audio, you can listen to that, but I really don't think it doesn't doesn't really, it doesn't necessarily pertain to this last little bit because in this last little bit, this last sentence, you'll be able to make a decision in regards to answering, you know, picking one uh, A through D. So. Here we go. Let's listen to it. And again, guys, just to reiterate, these are function questions. Here we go.
1: Keep in mind that this essay was written in 1838, a time when U.S. citizens were more insecure as individuals and as Americans. Keep in mind that this essay was written in 1838, 1838. a time when U.S. citizens were more insecure as individuals and as Americans.
0: A time where U.S. citizens were more insecure, okay, that's it, that's what she's saying, a time where U.S. citizens were more insecure, let me play that one more time. Keep in mind
1: that this essay was written in 1838, a time when U.S. citizens were more insecure as individuals and as Americans.
0: As individuals and as Americans, so here we go, A, To suggest that the citizens of the United States haven't changed much over time, that's actually really funny. (laughs) Oh, my God. But I read that. I was like, oh, that's a good smack in the face. Uh, But, yeah, anyways, that's like a nice little joke. But, again, we're we're listening to this little audio right here, right? So, again, is there any relationship in between what she said and, again, it – uh, 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 projected into the future that, oh, Americans haven't changed months since, you know, the 2020. While that may be the case, that's not the answer. Now, B, motivate the students. Now, again, is there any motivation with students or anything mentioned with students in this particular thing, in this particular audio? No. C, to point out why Emerson's essay has lost some of its relevance, No. D, to provide background for the concept she is explaining, she provided background. 1838, Americans were insecure as individuals and being Americans. That's the answer. Now, a lot of you are like, oh, well, you know, we'll probably have to listen to this first audio. So, you know what, let's mind as well, let's just listen to the first part.
1: I want to conclude today's class with a few points to consider while you're reading Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay, Self-Reliance. Remember, it's one of the most well-known essays, and you'll be comparing it with his other poems and literary works. I think you, as young people, will find this essay very meaningful, as you're likely at the point in your life where you're pondering the truth and where life will take you. You know, all those profound questions. Most of Emerson's works deal with one of his main beliefs about truth, and how we cannot be taught it. Emerson argues that truth is found within ourselves. One of the very first concepts that Emerson discusses in this paper is this truth, and the idea that it's within each one of us. While it is a little abstract, he feels strongly that each person should believe in his or her own thoughts, and believe in oneself, the thought or conviction that is true for you as a person. He goes on to tie this notion in with a sort of universal truth, something that everyone knows but may not realize that they know. The vast majority of us are not in touch with ourselves, so we cannot recognize this profound truth. However, some people have sight of this truth, this universal truth, and are aware of it, express it, and don't just dismiss it like most do. These people are often considered geniuses and are unique, for example, Shakespeare. Believing in and trusting yourself this is a key concept that Emerson discusses in support of this point Emerson first makes some important notes about conformity and criticizes those people of his time that abandoned their own mind their own will in favor of conformity and consistency. He comments on how even though it opposes their own beliefs and identity, these individuals try to fit in with the rest of the world. He argues that it is optimal to be a nonconformist, to be yourself, and ignore the opinions of others. You'll notice that he really highlights this whole argument throughout his entire work. Consider this and why these types of ideas would have been so relevant to the readers of his time while you're reading. Keep in mind that this essay was written in 1838, a time when U.S. citizens were more insecure as individuals and as Americans, and the nation was struggling to find its identity as a whole. Self-reliance was a novel concept then. It's a concept that I feel is still relevant today as it was back still then. Still
0: relevant today. Okay. Emerson
1: desired to make people think and to discover what it meant to be who they were. I also think that it's especially significant and relevant to adolescents like yourselves who are at a time in your life where you're contemplating a lot of these questions about who you are, where you're going, and where you'll end up.
0: There it is. Like I said, she said it is still relevant today. So C is not the answer to motivate the students about that particular time period. No, it's not about the time period. It's about Emerson's essay and the truth behind it. And then A hasn't changed much over time. No, because it's still relevant today. Boom. That's why D is the answer. Do you guys get it? So again, looking at the answer, boom, D is it. All right? So here we go. Let's listen to some more. We got some GIST content questions. So a lot of you who are listening to this, just means main idea, straight up. Mainly about, mainly discussing. Normally you see this on the TOEFL ITP. I'm referencing ITP because other people might be watching this as the first question, right? But main idea, guys, you could pick it up within the first two, uh, what is it? The first two sentences uh, that are spoken And then you're going to hear a repetition of words after that. And there are gonna be two ideas or one idea that he focuses on primarily. So by the end of the first question, I mean the first minute, you should know your answer. So what is the main thing that the professor is talking about? A, motor skills development in kids. B, the methods psychologists use to measure muscle activity and the throat. C. A theory explaining the relationship between thinking and muscle activity. Or D. A study about how deaf people solve their problems. So, here we go.
2: Let's continue our discussions on behaviorism. If you recall, last time we talked about the founder of behaviorism, John Watson. Like other psychologists, he believed that psychologists should study only the behaviors that they could observe and measure because he believed that we can't hear or witness people's thoughts, nor can we verify the accuracy of people's descriptions of their thoughts, so basically we can't study mental processes. So, the only way to study mental processes is to observe muscular habits, which John Watson felt are a manifestation of the act of thinking. Now, one specific type of muscular habit he studied is referred to as laryngeal habits. laryngeal habits from the larynx related to the voice box Watson believed were a measurable expression of one's thinking he claimed that for very young children thinking is really talking out loud to oneself because they talk out loud even if they're not trying to communicate with someone in particular as we grow up we don't do that anymore but thinking still shows up as a laryngeal habit In fact, it has been found by putting electrodes on the throat and measuring muscle potential that muscular activity in the throat region does increase when people are trying to solve a problem, and this supports Watson's claim. Now, while I'm speaking, notice how the muscles in my throat are responding as I think about what I'm going to say next. So, you can see how Watson viewed muscle.
0: So I can go on and on and on. But guess what? What's the relationship about? You guys know, there were two things that repeated were repeated over and over and over throughout that first half of the little audio that I just made you hear. So what is it? Again, he talks about the throat, but he kept talking about, okay, muscle thinking, muscle thinking, muscle thinking. The answer is C the relationship between thinking and muscle activity. Why? Because he was repeating it over and over. Now, did he say anything about kids? No, so A's gone. B, the method psychologists use to measure muscle activity. I mean, I could go on and on and we might hear something, but again, there's nothing about thinking in it. We're talking about what's the main thing, the main idea that the professor is talking about, the relationship between thought and muscle activity. And then again, D, I mean, I could probably play it on and on a little bit more. But listen, we already know the main idea halfway in. It doesn't say anything about deaf people and solve problems. There might be specific details at the end. But guys, we're looking for the main overall idea. That was more than half of the audio. That therefore makes up the majority of the audio. And therefore, it is the Main idea, the main thing, the main gist of what is being talked about. Got it? Don't get thrown off by the little specific details. Perhaps somewhere in the next five seconds or 10 seconds, he mentions development in kids. Perhaps he talks about deaf people solving problems. Perhaps, but those are only specific details. You have to be able to distinguish between the main idea and specific details. All right, so again, boom! A theory explaining the relationship between thinking and muscle activity is your answer. So here we go. Now we're gonna get into the last couple, okay? We have just purpose questions. Very, 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 uh, you know, similar. However, this focuses on the why. Not the main purpose, but you're asking why, okay? Not the specific details, it's very, very close. But again, the why, the purpose. So what is your purpose? What is your why? So the question is why does the student want to speak to the professor? We're gonna pick this up very quickly. She is hoping to get an extension on an assignment, asking letter of recommendation, needs help current assignment, trying to drop the class. Very, you should be able to pick this out very quickly. All right, here we go.
3: Hi, professor.
2: Hello, Linda. Do you have a question?
3: Yeah, I don't really understand this assignment.
2: The one about the language of the poem? Uh Uh-huh. Okay, what don't you understand about it?
3: Kind of everything.
2: All right, so first, tell me what you think the assignment is asking you to do.
3: I think it probably wants me to figure out, like, what the words mean and stuff, and how the language gives this poem meaning.
2: Good, that's quite right. And so, what you're having the most difficulty with, then, is arriving at an answer.
3: Yeah, I just, I don't know how to think about words and stuff like that. It doesn't come easily for me.
2: All right, so let's walk through. All right, we already got
0: the main idea. We don't need to get into all the specific details. The main interaction is like, hey, I do not understand this. What don't you understand? All of it. What's your answer? Did she talk about getting an extension? No. Letter of recommendation? Absolutely not. It's about an assignment, a current assignment. C is your answer. She said nothing about dropping a class either. You see how this follows? So again, it's all about picking. I'm telling you guys, it's those listed for the content words. It's the content words, all right? So here we go. We have connecting. Oh my God, this is going to be a long one. Okay, let's see what happens here. So connecting content questions. This is gonna be very interesting. So again, these questions are gonna ask you, okay, contrastive ideas, right? Or the relationship between different ideas. So again, what you have here indicate whether or not, okay, whether each of the following activities describes a displacement activity by checking yes or no, that's it. So, what we have, we have four activities. We have yes and no. That's all we have. So, the first activity is instead of attacking the enemy, an animal attacks another object. Next one. During its mating ritual, a bird grooms. Next. When a predator confronts it, an animal falls asleep instead of eating its food. And the last one after preening itself an animal drinks water so let's check this one out
2: now let's move on to the next type of animal behavior with an example now picture this a bird is in the middle of a mating ritual when suddenly it stops and grooms itself and within moments it gets back to its mating ritual now This act of straightening its feathers, while it appears to be engaged in a completely different activity, and that seems totally random, is called a displacement activity. When animals have conflicting drives, they may do something like this that we call a displacement activity. Looking back at our bird example, it's conflicted because it's scared of its mate, so it wants to fly away, but it also wants to mate at the same time. Another example of a displacement activity is that an animal just falls asleep when an enemy is set next to its food. The animal was conflicted about whether to eat its food or face the object it feared, so it just fell asleep. Yes, Amy?
3: What about an animal that attacks a plant or bush instead of fighting its enemy or running away?
2: Well, we call that redirecting. The animal is redirecting its behavior to another object. It's not an irrelevant or inappropriate behavior though. While the object that the behavior is being directed to doesn't make sense, the behavior does, and is appropriate given the circumstances. And we'll talk about this in more detail next week. Now, as we just said, displacement is the result of an animal's two conflicting drives. In a moment when they have two competing urges, for example, fear and hunger, the drives appear to cancel each other out and a seemingly random, unrelated third behavior occurs. This process is called disinhibition. Disinhibition is basically the notion that two different urges seem to inhibit each other while the third drive is actually expressed as the inhibiting effect. The third drive is expressed through specific behaviors. Certain actions called displacement activities, which can include feeding, drinking, grooming, and sleeping. These activities are also referred to as comfort behavior.
0: Wow, ah, okay. So these activities are also referred to as comfort behavior. Ooh, that was really good. Okay, there were two displacement, one completely different, I think redirecting, and another one comfort. So which ones? I want you guys to type your answers in the comment section or tag me on my Instagram, the Arsenio Buck Show, okay? And say, oh, the answer to this one is this. Or when you hear the podcast, make sure you share the podcast from directly from Spotify and tell me what your answers are for, for the connecting content questions, all right? So with that being said, let's get into this last one. Organization questions. How is the lecture organized? That's how it's going to be, okay? It's going to help you answer one by one. One, two, three, four. So if we look at this, how does the professor organize his lecture on blue jeans? A sequence to explain various methods of producing faded and worn look of jeans. Through introducing an abstract category like the idea of stonewashing by creating a question and answer format to involve the students with explaining the development of different kinds of pans and their impact of the popularity of jeans today.
3: Okay, today we're going to look at blue jeans. Blue jeans were first invented by Strauss and Jacob Davis in 1873 and came into prominence amongst teenagers in the 1950s. Since then, blue jeans have become a constant in almost every wardrobe around the world. Blue jeans are famous probably because of their faded and worn look, but have you ever wondered how blue jeans get this special look? Well, in approximately the 1950s, a textile manufacturing technique was invented to give jeans this faded look. This technique is now known as stone washing. It involved washing the jeans with rough pumice stones in a rotating drum, So because blue jeans were originally made of denim, which is a sturdy cotton textile, the rough pumice stones would scrape a layer off the denim, thus producing a faded worn appearance. Because this look was so effective, the stone washing technique was immensely popular. However, the expanding cost of importing pumice stone from abroad led to extensive mining of pumice deposits in the United States. This triggered a negative response from American ecologist groups. On top of that, stone washing is detrimental to the fabric, consequently reducing the lifespan of the blue jeans themselves. Then in the 1980s, a different technique called acid washing was introduced. Like stone washing, acid washing used pumice stones, but chlorine was added in the process. With chlorine, the denim is bleached white. The end result of acid washing is still faded jeans. However, the acid washed jeans have white streaks or spots where the dye faded. Both stone-washed and acid washed jeans were popular in the 1980s. Today, as a result of advancing biotechnology, industries no longer need to use stones to fade jeans. These stone washing techniques have been replaced by a process called biostoning. Now, biostoning produces the similar desired effects of the stonewashed and acid-washed techniques, but utilizes enzyme. The enzyme used in this process is called cellulase. You see-
0: so we could go on and on and on, but she's producing a number of different ways that they use things to create things. So was there an abstract category? I didn't hear it. Creating a question? Is she talking to the students? Hell no. <laughs> there are no students. She's just like, blah, 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 blah. So B and C is gone. So, with explaining the development of different kinds of pants and their impact on the popularity of blue jeans today, <gasps> or in a sequence to explain the various methods of producing this faded and worn look of jeans, <laughs> by my actions, and you guys listening to my voice, on my podcast and through video and looking at my actions, you guys probably know what I'm talking about. This is how you follow it. So again, within the first probably 30 seconds, I picked it up very quickly. I said, oh no, she's talking about different sequences. Okay, she gave a little background and then she went into, okay, here we go, stonewashing. Okay, this one, 1970s, 1980s, this time, this time, this time, it was all about the production. How it was, you know, how they changed and did different things. I didn't hear an abstract category, like like an idea. No, no, that's not what that whole main talk is about. There was no question, obviously, to get students involved. And it wasn't about the popularity. So I look at those main keywords, guys. Popularity, okay, involving students. That means I need to hear interaction. And then again, through, through introducing one abstract category, no, she listed, okay, this time, this time, they did this, this time, they did this, this time, they did this. Those are various methods. That's how you follow it. So guys, with that being said, I hope you understood this a little bit more. Again, if you guys have any questions, let me know. I go over this on my uh, on my Patreon if you guys want to see some of those mock tests and all that good stuff. and Again, if you guys want two free coaching hours and two assessments along with your membership badge, if you guys are interested in something that's very cost efficient for your budget, get in touch with me. Again, TOEFL writing classes, I'm hoping to bring that up very soon. Uh, Reading, listening, and speaking classes also. So if you have a group of friends who are learning, the more the cheaper. So reach out to me, guys. And with that being said, thank you so much for tuning in to another wonderful long TOEFL IBT coaching. I'm your host as always. Stay tuned for more over and out.